This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. When the championships got underway on April the 4th, nobody was convinced they'd still be going two weeks later. Thanks to the efficiency of the Racing New South Wales biosecurity protocols and the willingness of participants to do the right thing, the great three-day carnival was an outstanding success. Apart from the spine-tingling thunder of hooves and the reverberation of the public address system, there was eerie silence at the most hallowed of Sydney's racetracks. But to those who had a connection to the 10 Group 1 winners, the sense of occasion was just as exhausting and the thrill just as electric as they would have been in front of 20,000 screaming fans. Best story, the fairy tale win of the cantankerous Natoya in the Doncaster for Wendy Roach and James Innes Jr. What a win by the veteran Etta James as she became the fifth mayor to win the Sydney Cup in 30 years. King's Legacy's Group 1 double vindicated his massive purchase price and Quick Thinker gave yet another Kiwi a win in the Australian Derby. Nature Strip's demolition job on the opposition in the TJ Smith was a real buzz while Colette proved to be the dominant filly in the Oaks. A Dave gave young jockey Tom Marquand another Group 1 in his adopted country by scoring brilliantly in the Queen Elizabeth. Conda Patiro continued on her Group 1 journey in the Coolmore legacy, while Tofane spoiled Pirata's bid to go out on a winning note in the all-aged. Great horses, great horsemen made the 2020 Championships very special in these trying times. Grant Buckley was on the crest of a winning wave when he crashed to the turf on the home turn in the sixth of ten races at Newcastle on March 31st. Arguably Australia's busiest jockey, Grant had already ridden two winners for the Godolphin machine earlier in the day and was on another one of their runners, Seraglio, in a 1,200 metres maiden. There was a sudden shift inwards from the horse he was following and he was unable to avoid its heels. Grant got to his feet almost immediately and was confident he'd escaped injury. So confident, in fact, that he convinced the club's medical officer to let him ride in later races. He completed three more engagements on the day, and it wasn't until he was driving back to Sydney that the pain set in. By the following morning, a broken collarbone was diagnosed and doctors grounded him for a minimum of six weeks. Just to give you an idea of this man's achievements in the last 20 years, I've compiled some statistics which you'll find very interesting. In the late 1990s, Grant Buckley took the decision to forsake metropolitan racing where his opportunities were limited to concentrate on provincial and country racing. From the start of the 1999-2000 season until the end of the 2018-19 season, he had 21,570 rides. For 1,856 wins plus 10 dead heats, he rode 2,068 seconds plus 9 dead heats and 2,235 thirds plus 10 dead heats for that minor spot. The number of miles he's travelled to honour those commitments is inestimable. In order to record a podcast with Grant Buckley, it's a matter of waiting until he's suspended or injured. Sadly, it's the latter. 
Let's see how he's getting on. Grant Buckley, thanks for your company on the podcast. And to use racing parlance, I'll bet you're walking the box. <laughs> I am, I'm, um, I've been weaving at the front door for a few for a few weeks, um, Tappy. So yeah, mm. but um, no, I've been keeping myself pretty busy. Grant, I bet you had no idea you've had twenty one thousand five hundred and seventy rides since nineteen ninety nine. It's mind boggling. Yeah, like you say, John. Like that's a lot of rides. Like I probably don't dwell on the the numbers so much. I sort of just you know you you know jump in the car and go and ride. But when you sort of Throw those figures out and throw the um, statistics out. It's um, yeah, it's it's mind-boggling. Mm. Clipping the heels of another runner in a race is a very common hazard for jockeys. Most times you stay on your feet. Sometimes you don't. Yeah, like you say, John. Like you know, I've, oh, there's been days where I've clipped heels for you know three, four hundred meters and can't do anything about it, but. Just that Dad's always said to me as I was a rider, and he said the the clip that you don't hear, that's always the one that's the worst. <laughs> so mm. it definitely is. You had three more rides after that buster at Newcastle. There must have been some discomfort in those three rides, was there? Oh, as, it was funny, John. I sort of got up on the straight up on my feet, um, which I've sort of always been drummed into me since I was a kid from my father, and mm. I sort of got up. I, I felt I was very winded, but then I sort of, as I sort of got my bearings and that, I, I actually felt physically okay. Mm. But it was just, um, it was just when I started to cool down. I went to the room and had a shower, and refocused, and um, I felt okay. So that's when I thought, mm. well, I'll press on. So you got around on the three. I don't think any of them placed, did they? No, no, they um, – actually, a couple of times there I thought I was in winning positions, but they just didn't go on with it. But mm. out there I felt fine. It was just, um, as you said before, just as I cooled down on the way home, that's when I mm. knew I was in a bit of trouble. When you got back to Sydney, did you take yourself straight to the hospital? No, I didn't actually, John. I sort of got home and unloaded my gear into the shed. That's normal practice. And um, mm. I come inside and I said to Chantel, I said, oh, I'm in trouble because like I, I was walking mm. like a duck. <laughs> yeah. Right. So did you go to hospital then or wait until the following morning? No, no, John, no, I didn't. I sort of just um, – I, I had a – like had a shower and that and um, Chantel sort of gave me some tablets and things like that and mm. I had a rest that night. I didn't sleep great. And then the next morning I booked myself in to um, go see um, the, um, the Dr. Duckworth mm. and um, and he got me some scans and things like that and then they sort of picked up the, um, the break in my collarbone. Mm. And he said six weeks minimum. Yeah, he said six weeks but I'm going to try to get back earlier than that, if I can. But, <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would. <laughs> but um, I'll just see how the body is, um, oh. that if um, if my body feels fine, I'll be definitely back earlier. You'd broken the century five times on the New South Wales Premiership in the last 20 years, and at the time of this fall, you were well on your way to doing it again. You were sitting on 84 wins, and you've still got four months of the season remaining. You still might do it. Yeah, John, like you say, you know, it's um yeah, it's it's unfortunate what happened, but you know, I was sort of um yeah, in a bit of a zone at the time and yeah, I was getting good opportunities and yeah, just um like you, you know yourself, John, this game's a great level. You can be on the top one minute and on the bottom the next. Your busiest season was 1999-2000 when you had 1268 rides. You're quite a season. 
was 0708 when you had 831 rides. Now, historically, you're either just under or just over the 1,000 per season. Yeah, like I sort of set myself a goal. Like I always like to get those numbers. Um, it's, I know it sounds suicidal, but, yeah, I always <laughs> like to sort of get that that figure around those high numbers and it sort of just gives you a little bit more opportunity to, to ride your winners and that. And um, mm. but you just, I just ride at so many meetings, John. It's quite staggering how quick my numbers can go up. Mm. You know, do six, seven meetings a, a week. It's sort of – your numbers really increase quite, um, quite really quickly. Well, your dad, Clary Buckley, had a long and successful career as a jockey, but despite the genetic influence – you were not completely sold on the idea early in your life. No, it wasn't, John. I, I actually never touched a horse, probably, or never rode a horse, I should say, till I was about oh, 14. Mm. Um, and I had a bit of a trotter of a horse in, uh, actually, it's Gary White's property now where he's got the big setup. It was just a, mm. a big dirt paddock, and I trotted a grey horse around there. I think it was Gary Fraser. Um, gave me a horse and I trotted around there and I thought it felt pretty good and mm. and dad dad sort of just sort of you know give me a bit of cheering on the way through and yeah mm. I never looked back. I think deep down your dad would have been tickled pink had you indicated you'd be a jockey, but he never pushed you, did he? Not once, John. Not mm. once did he say you know like come on, be you know go and ride. Let's you know follow my footsteps at all. Mm. I think he just sort of let me make my own mind up and. Um, and and once I did do that, I was I'm quite determined that way. And um, yeah, that's you know I was no um, I was no great jockey to start with. I tell you, it's sort of taken me a long time to learn the trade. But <laughs> but you know, as you know, Dad just always drummed it into me. He said, just keep turning up, mate, and um, things yeah. will turn. Your dad uh, has no idea how many winners he rode. He thinks it might be around six hundred took himself off to Adelaide for a few years and this is where he had his greatest success. He won a big double in 1964, the South Australian derby on Zyema and the yep. Oaks the same year on a filly called Blue Pack who was having only her second start in a race and he rode them both a treat. Yeah, no, um, I was, actually I've got those photos at home, those mm. two horses that you've talked of and, um, yeah, no, Dad, Dad's very um, – not. You know, he doesn't spruik himself as a rider or anything like that. But um, Dad is—he was a very, very good jockey in his own time, and um, yeah, a great horseman too. The horse he won the Derby on, Zayima, was trained by Bart Cummings, and just over a year later, he all but won the Melbourne Cup of 1965. He was beaten in the last bound uh, by his stablemate, Light Fingers. I think John Miller rode Zayima as a four-year-old. Yeah, Dad rode some. Actually, that was the um, that time of in the era that was the go-to place, South Australia. A lot of good horses, a lot of good trainers come out of that um, that area. And um, mm. Dad used to ride Light Fingers, and Zayma used to ride all them work. And mm. he said it's probably the best. He reckons Light Fingers is the best horse he's ever swung his leg over. Really, just the feel yeah. she gave on the track. Very strong and just unbelievable horse. He said, um, "Yeah, she's unbelievable horse." Clary won a race on a very brilliant horse, but a very quirky horse called Manahai uh, during his time in South Australia. This horse went on to win a new market later, 1967, and, and went on to become a very good sire. And one of his sons was the brilliant Manicato. 
Clary said the best horse he ever sat on in a race, Manahai. Yeah, like he's he's um he's like a, he mentions a few horses that he rode in his career, and he's def- that's definitely one of them. But like you say, he was a bit quirky. I think he liked the buck a bit that horse. So that mm. said, he was always you always had to have your wits about you. But yeah, those those um those horses that you mentioned, John, those three horses, he's probably always he mentions a horse would be one of those horses for sure. Yeah, he actually retired for a while in the late nineteen seventies, but he made a comeback to ride a very smart two-year-old called Cheval de Volet. Uh, Clary by this was back in Sydney in the Hawkesbury Valley. Wade Slinkard trained Cheval de Volet. Clary, I think, actually broke him in and then rode him a lot of work and he made the comeback to win the Pago Pago stakes on him in 1978. Yeah, Dad always tells a story, actually, Wade was a jackaroo, and um, I think he was working behind the local bar at the time, at the local Clarendon, I think it was. Mm. And, um, yeah, Dad would, did a bit of breaking in. I think Wade had that horse, and Dad broke it in. Dad did a bit of work on it and did a few gallops, and Dad said to Wade, you take your trainer's licence out and I'll go back riding because I want to ride this horse. And, <laughs> you know, and then it was history. The horse was um, it was a very good horse in his own right. Yeah, Wade didn't run him in the Golden Slipper of 1978. He just wasn't completely happy with him at acceptance time and gave the slipper a miss. But he did go on later to win some more races. He was very quick. Yeah, he was very quick. And he was actually another horse that had his little lurks and perks too. Um, mm. I think he was a little bit of a handful as a baby. And when Dad said he broke him in, Dad said he was a – he was a bit of a handful, but Dad just said he was just always a natural galloping horse and, um, mm. yeah, Dad had a really, like, a lot of time for the horse. Mm. Your dad is one ex-jockey who mastered a few other skills. He's a jack-of-all-trade. He's got a special talent for landscaping and he's done a lot of work for a lot of people around the Hawkesbury Valley area. I think you helped him early days. Yeah, well, um, that was my, like, when I was at school, I used to, um I used to go to work with Dad on, like every day that I wasn't at school. Um, we used to have a few few sickies, I know that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we sort of just, um, yeah, I used to virtually live in Dad's back pocket. We, if you, wherever Dad was, I was a step behind him. Um, he learnt me, like, taught me a lot of, lot of things like um, bricklaying, paving, concreting, mm. cement rendering. He just, he, he's been a, been a gift to me because it sort of um, helped me a lot in, in my time as well. You've never strayed far from the Hawkesbury Valley. Your original apprenticeship was with Richard Nutman, who's still training, but you later transferred to Warwick Hales, who is retired. Yeah, no, Richard, um, yeah, I first started off with Richard. Um, he was he was great. He actually had the property out at Gross Wild there, had like a bit of a um, pre-training set up out there, had a backtrack and things like that, and I think I really learned a lot from Richard because I rode a lot of babies as well. I just wasn't riding in the pad. I was riding in the big saddle, rode mm. a lot of a lot of babies and things like that. So I think it sort of gave me a really good grounding. Then um, I think it was about a, about a year later I decided to switch over to Warwick Hales and um, he went to the track quite a lot. So that sort of suited to what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah, no, Warwick taught me the fine points and um, mm. taught me really how to ride like a jockey. And, yeah, it, it was it was really good to do. Warwick trained a couple of nice horses in his time. Prince Trialia, who was a dual Group 1 winner in Brisbane. You didn't ride him, but you rode his other good horse, Mr Bureaucrat. Yeah, I did. I had a little bit to do with Mr Bureaucrat early, actually. I um, 
I used, I used to ride him work and um, a few things like that and had a little bit to do with the horse. But he was always a really nice, bold horse that was always going to the, the you know, the more he the more he got over ground and um, the, the longer he got into his preparations and things like that. He was just um, a really nice staying horse in the making. It was another Hawkesbury trainer, Gary Fraser, who gave you your first ride in a race at Nowra. You ran second and Gary continued to be one of your greatest supporters in those early days. Yeah, Gary's been a great supporter of mine, but I sort of grew up around, the, like, always growing in the Hawkesbury area and things like that, but... um. Yeah, I had a lot to do with Gary as a kid and, um, yeah, he, he really just took me under his wing and it was never an effort for Gary to put me on a horse or um, give me the opportunity. Um, like my first race ride, I probably should have won by lengths. John, I was, I was <laughs> flapping all over all over my horse and I had Johnny Powell, which is probably one of the most stylish riders going around. So yeah, yeah. it was a little bit, little bit of a different on film there. But, no, it was, it was really good that Gary gave me that opportunity. But, to this day, we're really good friends and good mates, and mm. if he's got a horse that goes well, he always gives me a call and I go and ride at work, and then we try to you know, try to win a race with the horses. Mm. You rode a lot of work with a young Ty Angland when he was apprenticed to Gary Fraser, and Ty has been one of your greatest friends all through. You've been for him, you've been there for him every moment since his accident in Hong Kong, and you tell me you speak with him most days. Well, we've got a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a setup there with Ty. I sort of, um, I, I actually talk to him every morning. Um, I'll talk to him on the way to the races, and then, yeah, every night I send him a text, say good night, mate. Talk to you tomorrow. Just, you know, he's been through a lot, the poor bugger, and I just always want to let him know that that I'm there 100 percent for him, and and he knows that, and um, yeah, but. What Ty's been through sort of gives me a little bit of grounding in my life as well. I just don't take anything for granted now. I used to, but not now, John. Like if I if I can wake up in the morning, go to the races, and you know, see your family, you know, it's it just ties. What Ty's been through, it's just been um, very emotional for everyone. But yeah, I just take my hat up to I take my hat off to Ty. He's just a you know unbelievable man. I'm hoping to get Ty as a podcast guest in the very near future. You might do a bit of work there behind the scenes. I already did, John, after I spoke to you the other day. Oh, I, told, I told Ty that um, that you wanted to talk to him. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll have to give him a call in the next few days. So I think you'll probably hear from him soon, mate. That's great. Grant, stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast back shortly. Some of Australia's best race mares, many of them in fold at Champion Stallions, will be offered at this year's English Chairman Sale, which will be conducted with online and telephone bidding on Friday, May the 8th. 55 fillies and mares form the main catalogue, headlined by multiple Group 1 winner in her time, Group 1 Oakley Plate winner Booker, who will be sold unreserved, Group 1 winner and four-time Group 1 place getter Unforgotten, Clean Up the Dam of Doncaster winner Natoya, Infold the Autumn Sun, Group 1 winner Young Star, a daughter of internationally respected stallion High Chaparral. Among the latest wildcard entries is the outstanding race filly Fundamentalist, a daughter of Not a Single Doubt and Infold to Zoo Star. This filly was Group 1 placed five times. The Chairman's Sale will begin at 3pm on Friday, May 8, online at english.com.au with a live broadcast hosted by Caroline Searcy. For those looking for the right mare to create a commercial family that will breed on for generations, this is the sale for you. The English Chairman's Sale, Friday, May 8, online. <laughs> 
My special guest is Grant Buckley. Jockeys never forget their first win and the prevailing circumstances on the day. Now, most kids seem to ride sprinters early in their riding careers, but Gary White thought enough of you to throw you on a horse called Impossible Mission in a 2,300-metre race at Hawkesbury. Now, you were very touched by the win, of course, and the fact that three special people rode in that race with you made it even better. Who were they? It was Rodney Rodney Quinn, Rodney Hardwick, and my father. So mm. I sort of had a probably big helping hand in the um, in that race, John, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of help, eh? Yeah, no, it was. Um, I went past Rodney Hardwick around about the 600-metre mark, and he said, just stay there, mate. Don't go yet. And then um, <laughs> then I went. Then Rodney Quinn just said, "Stay tight." And then um, when I went past Dad, I think it was Dad said, "Steer the bloody thing around the corner," because I was known to let them drift on the corner a bit. So As they I'd could play. do at Hawkesbury, then couldn't they? <laughs> yeah, the corner was a lot different. Then it was a lot sharper. But mm. yeah, I had plenty of um, guidance through the race. That's for sure. You've already mentioned the slinkards of Windermere Farm. Wade and Doreen Slinkard were great supporters of young Grant Buckley all the way through. They only recently retired from the horse training business and they've gone down to the south coast to fish and lay about. And very much deserved, John. I've seen it like I've known them for many years, actually. Wade and Doreen used to babysit me when I was probably one year old, two year old. So mm. that's how far that's how far we go back and I had a, like a long time association with Wade when he was a trainer. I was always used to ride work at the racetrack and also used to ride work out at the farm for him as well. And like you say, he was a really good supporter of mine and Doreen. Um, they were great people to me and great friends and we're still friends to from this day on. By the mid-1990s, <clears throat> you were doing your best to stay afloat in the very tough Sydney arena. You were dedicated you were very reliable and you were very light. But even that didn't bring the opportunities as quickly as you would have liked. But there was one particular Warwick Farm trainer who took a shine to you and to this day you're very grateful to him. Yeah, Mr Cave. Um, what can I say about Paulie? He sort of, um, yeah, he's really helped me as a rider through my career but how it all started was one day there at Campbell, I think I had a ride in race one mm. and he had a horse in, I think it was the last race, and he asked me could I stay back and ride it. I didn't really want to, to be honest, but mm. I thought, well, you know, I've got to do that, you know, because I wasn't getting many rides at the time. And um, he asked me to stay back and ride a horse and I had a little bit of luck on that horse. And um, then he asked me, I think it was a couple of weeks later, would I go to Campbell for him for a couple, which I did, and I went on one of them. Mm. And then it just, yeah, it just sort of really sort of give my career a really kickstart in life. I was sort of just treading water, like you said before. I was sort of going everywhere for one, two rides, like the Bathurst, mm. Orange. I was doing a lot of miles just for one or two rides. And once I sort of got that opportunity from Paul, it sort of just, um, yeah, it sort of turned my career around and I owe a lot to Paul for that. Well, two notable horses you rode for Paul Cave were Lahar very good staying mare who dead-heated for third in a Melbourne Cup later on, and a little horse called Pastor Express. And there's an amazing coincidence about these two horses, Grant. Uh, they both won a Christmas Cup and a Kembla Cup in the same preparation, 
and you rode them both on those occasions. Christmas Cup and a Kembla Cup on both horses. It's a unique double. Yeah, it was. It was, um, yeah, like Lahar, she was, she was a beautiful horse and um, like Little Pastor Express, he was just a little fella that he's, it was all heart, but just true, true stays they were. And um, yeah, it was just great to, to do the double the, the first year and then to back it up and do it again. It was just, um, yeah, it was it was it was very very good for Paul and very very good at me for the mm. st- at that stage of my career. So it's really given me that um, bit of a push to to have the opportunity to ride them sort of horses and to win those doubles was um, it was just a really a really push in my career to go forward. It sort of just turned turned the page for me big time. Paul Cave has long been respected as a trainer of stayers. He likes his horses to be patient in the longer races and he likes his jockeys to be the same. You can only recall one occasion where he was displeased with one of your rides. Yeah, when I probably first started to ride for Paul, he always used to say to me, Buckle, you're going too early. Count to 10 before you take off. That was <laughs> that was his saying to me all the time. Yeah. And I remember I rode this horse at Canterbury, um, you know, I think it was the 1900 metre race, and I did. I did take off too early, and I just got nabbed on the line. And he didn't say much, but, it, you know, just come over and see me with that Irish voice. He just said, bucko, the winning post is down this end, not down the other end. So that was the only, <laughs> that's the only bad word he's ever, ever said to me, Paulie. Yeah. No, he's a remarkable bloke. He's a charming Irishman in every sense of the word. Terrific trainer of stayers. And I just hope a, a, a good horse wanders into his yard in the near future. Yeah, like you say, John, I hope so too. But, um, like, his numbers have um, down a little bit now. But, you know, you give Paul the right horse, he can he can do definitely something with a, with a nice mm. horse. He's, um, you know, he's a great trainer in his own right. Before we get on to your life as a travelling jockey, let's look at a few special horses you got to ride in the city. Now, you had a fleeting association with Private Steer before she changed stables. You rode her four times, Grant, for a win yep. in the listed Reginald Allen, you ran third on her in the flight stakes, Group 1. You yep. won a three-year-old fillies race on her at Randwick. She was unplaced then in the three-year-old Magic Millions. Did you ever think she would win three Group 1s and $3.4 million? To be honest, John, yes, I did because she was just a machine like the first time I ever rode, actually, I think Jeff Penzer won on her her maiden at Campbell Grange, and yep. I was in town at that time. And um, the owner rung me up after the race meeting and said, "I want you to watch this video of the horse and see what you think." And I watched the race and I thought, "Oh, that was a really good win. It won by about ten lengths, I think it was." And um, mm. then I ro- I had the opportunity to ride a, her next start in the listed race, and and she won. She won with ease. I've, I've never ever travelled in a race like that ever and come to the top of the rows at Ramwick and just blow them out of the water. I knew I was on something special. Yeah, she had a great turn of foot, didn't she? Yeah, she sort of just um, – she used to just sit off the speed, but when she when she um, went, she, she had a great turn of foot. Mm. You know, only a select group of jockeys can boast that they rode a Melbourne Cup winner. You can – you ran yep. fourth in the Chipping Norton Stakes on the Bart Cummings train viewed a few months after he won the 2008 Melbourne Cup for Blake Shin. 
Yeah, no, he was um he was a, he was a beautiful horse. He, he was like riding a forty four gallon drum. He had a neck on him, unbelievable <laughs> neck on him. But he was just a, a very very strong horse, and um yeah, it was great to have the opportunity to ride a horse like that of that caliber. And it's also great to you know ride for Bart. You know, he was mm. he was just a genius. You won a Group Three on a horse called Marchinsky for Tracy Bartley a few years ago. And you were very disappointed when he was sold to Hong Kong, where he's gone on to win several races under a different name, Vital Flyer. You're adamant, however, that he didn't realise his full potential in Hong Kong. No, he's a sort of he's a sort of a, um, a hot horse, and um, I've been over there when Ty was over in Hong Kong riding, and I sort of went over there in the environment. I just couldn't see that environment suiting that horse because he was such a he's a bit of a funny horse and. I think he just didn't handle the um, the the conditions over there, but but when he was back in Australia, I had no doubt that he would have probably gone on and won group races, group one races for sure. Did you make a conscious decision to go bush, or did it just happen? Did you drift into it? I probably, John, I probably did drift into it. I was probably it probably wasn't a decision, a full decision. I sort of just had the opportunities to ride like more in the bush and provincial-wise, I sort of had had a lot of numbers, but I had a lot of quality in the provincials and country as well. Mm. And I was sort of just lacking that. I was, I was probably going to Sydney for two or three rides in Sydney and the quality probably wasn't there. So that probably just played my hand to sort of focus on the country and the provincial circus because I was just getting a lot more opportunity. So it just made sense to me to go down that road. Mm. It would have been impossible to coordinate your day-to-day activities in the last 20 years without the services of a very good manager. Jeff Bryan was there for you for a long time. Currently, it's Andrew Northridge. They both know their business and they both make it work for you. Yeah, no, like um, like you say, um, Jeff Bryan, he was, he was with me for, for many years and we just decided just the part things weren't working out that well. And um, he also he had a few few things going on in his life as well. So we decided to part company on good terms. And then, um, yeah, and then Andrew Northridge, he's actually Ty's old manager. So mm. sort of it was ironic that that happened. But, yeah, sort of um, he's been great. He's been um, he's just a really good form person and, um, yeah, he, he pushes me quite hard, which is which is good. And, yeah, he sort of does a really good job for me. Grant, the one thing that helped build your reputation in those early days was the fact that you turned up. You might have had only three or four average rides at Taree, but you were there every time and trainers trusted you. I think that's a yeah, – I think it's a it's, – that was drummed into me a lot as a kid, Dad – you know, Dad always used to say, you know, you go for one or two, mate, because, you know, they're, they're giving you the respect to putting you on the horse, so you need to turn up and ride it. So I've always had that in my in my mind all the time. I sort of, even if I got one or two, I, I just don't, I've sort of been raised that way. I just don't like letting people down. So, and, you know, I, I just sort of just turn up and, you know, you just never know. You could be going for those two slow ones, but you just don't know. You know, you could pick up a nice ride or that, that horse mm. that you didn't think much good could turn out to be something later on in, you know, mm. in life. You've had dozens of doubles and trebles at the out-of-town meetings. What about four or better on the day? Uh, what what has been your best day? 
Actually, my best day has been it was at Newcastle. Oh. I rode the first four winners, mm. and I was on the dollar, I think dollar eighty favourite in the fifth, mm. and um, I just got beat a nose on that. So that was probably one of my best days. But I backed up four winners the next day at Nara, so that was that was probably a really good um, couple of days of riding. Mm. Say that again. Many yeah, no, jockeys, great. many jockeys have got a sweat before they even leave home. And they're back into the sauna when they get to the races. It's a time-consuming business. You've never had to put up with that. The only time I probably would have to put up with John was when I was um, an apprentice because we had to ride 48 kilos, 49. Mm. And I, I did have to do a bit of sweating when I was an apprentice. But as I've sort of – my riding's gone on, the weights have gone up. So I've sort of stabilised around about the 52 Mark, so that's been really good. Now the weights are like 54, 55. It's sort of mm. it's made my life a lot easier, the amount of travelling and that I do. Like I don't have to do very much sweating. Sure, I might have to do a little bit of a sweat in winter times now and then, but not very often. So I'm one of the lucky ones compared to a few of the other boys. I know they mm. in the sauna for three, you know, two, three hours and have to lose two and three kilos. Mm. I'm sort of lucky I don't have to do that. So, you know, I'm quite fortunate. On rare occasions, you'll ride a horse in the bush that gives you a very good feel. Good enough to warrant your recommending the horse to the connections as deserving a shot in town. Have there been any notable examples of that? There's been a few. Um, there's been a few, like, around, like for the like country trainers and that that I ride for. Yeah, there has mm. been a few there that I've suggested, but... A lot of the time there when you're riding at the country marks, you sort of start a benchmark and then you sort of say maybe should head provincials and then from provincials and then progress mm. to town. So that's usually the way I go. But there's been a, there's been a few nice horses along the way that um, I have suggested to go to town straight away. And, um, mm. yeah, yeah, that's um, it's worked good for us. Mm. Well, how do you handle that situation? Uh, if you think a horse is good enough to go to the metropolitan area, when it finally lines up at Randwick or Rose Hill, what do you do? Do you uh, honour your commitments out of town or will you have a day in the city? Well, John, that's like I said before, if I've sort of got that opportunity in town, I think it's worth going for and, you know, and I do like the horse and, you know, and the people I ride for, owners and the trainers that support me, if I think it's worthwhile going to town, I sort of just go to town for one or two and just, um, just play my luck and hopefully it works out for the better. There was a time when many cockies doubled as horse trainers and you had to ride some pretty rough horses. I've heard jockeys say on occasions that they had to break one in on the way to the barrier. But I think country <laughs> trainers have caught up in the main, haven't they? I think so, John. I think it's um, it's very professional now and I think it doesn't matter really where you travel today, everything's probably done properly like, um, you know, they trial now and they've got to go through a lot of process before they get to the races. So mm. I think that sort of helped help racing a lot. But, no, there is a few there that you have to do. You have to break in before you get to the trials. There is, there is a few horses there for sure. <laughs> now, we must pay tribute to your wife, Chantelle, who was born into a racing family and had some success as a jockey herself. Her dad is former jockey and trainer Bruce Johnson. Her maternal grandfather was the late Barry Smith, a brilliant jockey in the 1950s in Sydney. I remember him well, I'm embarrassed to say. Is it <laughs> any wonder Chantel could sit on? 
<laughs> yeah, no, Chantel, she was um, yeah, she actually she she rode like the country circuit, and then she come and rode provincials at the end of her career, and um, she won the Rising Stars um series as an apprentice, so that was a feather in her cap. But she was very she was very capable rider. She always had very soft hands, and um, mm. she always really good with horses. She never lost a temper with horses or anything like that. She was actually a really good um. Horsewoman, and um, yeah, no, she had a she had a really good um, go at it, and she just decided that yeah, she's um, media was the side that she wanted to go, so she mm. sort of hung her boots up and hasn't looked back. Her late grandfather Barry Smith travelled from Tamworth to French's Forest some years ago uh, to appear on a program we had called Inside Racing, and I had the great honour to interview Barry for that show. Uh, we recorded in the boardroom at Sky Channel and Chantelle was there sitting in the background in the boardroom the day I interviewed her grandfather. I remember it so well. Yeah, no, Barry, he was a lovely man and um, like you said, you know, he rode some really good horses and um, he was a very, very good jockey. Um, everything, Everyone you talk to that know, knew Barry or, you know, mm. knew of him, he's just, they just said he was such a great horseman and such a great rider. Mm. And um, his career was cut short. I think he had a bad fall at Hawkesbury, and yeah. um, he decided to hang his boots up after that. But I, I sort of met Barry the first time, and he took me around and showed me all the photos on the wall, and used to talk <laughs> about all the old times and the horses that he rode. But yeah. he was a lovely, he was a lovely man, and um, yeah, I'm so glad that you know I sort of was around early enough to to meet Barry and spend a bit of time with him. Two of those photos. Uh, I can pick. One of them would have been a horse called Channel Rise. He won an AJC Derby on Channel Rise, who was a maiden. And he also won a Doombin 10,000 on a horse called Rim Boy. So in a very short career, he got himself a couple of group ones. Yeah, like you say, those 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 horses that you mentioned, he definitely showed me them. I remember meeting Barry for the first time at, at his house and I got the grand tour, but we stopped at the photos on the wall and, we had a long conversation about them horses, that's for sure, Tappy. Mm. You know, back to Chantel. She was still riding work just a few years ago but decided to quit the saddle when she landed a regular role with the Sky team. She's a familiar face on form line. She covers the official barrier trials and is often seen in the mounting yard appraising the appearance of runners at the country race meeting. She's doing a great job, Grant. She is, and um, they actually, when she first started, they sort of, she was quite nervous, and they threw her straight into the deep end, like she had to do trials and things like that. And um, yeah, no, she's she's just uh, unbelievable. The amount of form she does, it's like she can be up at all godly hours of the, of the night doing a form, and that she's such a professional at a job. It's just, I take my hat off to her because I, I don't think I could do what she does. She's just. She really, you know, crosses the T's and dots her I's. She's just, yeah, I really take my hat off the way she's um, taken it with both hands and she's doing a great job. She's also an outstanding chauffeur. Uh, she goes with you to a <laughs> lot of those country meetings and relieves you of some of the driving. Yes, John, she's a very good driver. I'd never have a question of driving, but um, mm. no, it's good. Like she, she does a lot of meetings that I go to, so it works out quite well. She'll, she'll drive there and I'll drive home or 
either either way we sort of sort it out and um, mm. oh, it's just great to have her support because sometimes there, John, you know, I could be riding four or five days in a row and just to have someone drive and take that pressure off, you sort of go to the races feeling a lot fresher, just not driving to that race meeting. It helps me mm. quite a lot. Most jockeys of mature years can usually tell you exactly how many race falls they've had. Now, I asked you this question on the phone the other day and you answered in a flash. What <laughs> number four was the recent one at Newcastle? I think I was number 18. Oh, I think. good yes. heavens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember one week there, John, I had um, actually – I had three race falls in like five days. You're kidding. And, uh, uh, it was just—it was a week that I want to forget about. But yeah, I remember talking my, to my father after the third one on the way home, and Dad just said, "Mate, I can't watch the races for about a week." He said, "You're doing—you're doing my head in." <laughs> he said, yeah, yeah. "I can't watch." And were they <laughs> but, silly uh, falls, Grant? Those ones, silly fall, clipping heels. No, um, I think my first one, the horse broke its shoulder on the point of the corner at Cessnock. Oh. Um, then I was in a four-horse fall at. Newcastle. Yep. Then I was in a two horse four at Ramwick. That was a, yeah, it was a week that I yeah like to forget. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you walked away from all three. John, it was it was amazing. Like a lot of the other boys, they didn't walk away so so lightly. But I walked away just with a few bumps and bruises, and I was able to mm-hmm. ride the next day after all those falls. So yeah, I've been quite lucky in my career. You've developed a great rapport with the Godolphin operation. Now, James Cummings frequently has runners at Newcastle and Kembla Saturdays, and you and Jeff Penzer seem to share the rides. Now, how does it work? Uh, do they tell your manager which horses they want you for? Yeah, it does. I, that's the protocol they sort of go. My manager rings and just gets a gets a bit of a feel of what they've got, and then they sort of give you what they've got, where, they've, where they're running their horses and that, and... You know, you, you take them rides because it's great to be, you know, associated with James and the um, and the Cadolphin team. So, yeah, they sort of ring them up and just sort of go through my manager. And then, um, yeah, and then my manager relays it to me of, um, just to let me know what, what's coming up with the Cadolphin team, which is always good to have them on side. You had three rides recently on Colette, brilliant winner of the Australian Oaks on April 11. You ran second in a Kembla Maiden. You then won a Class 1 at Newcastle and a Benchmark 64 at Kembla. Did she feel like an Oaks winner? Did you like her? It was funny you say that, John, because actually when I rode her at Kembla, I think I took her a little bit lightly and she runs second. I thought it just, you know, wasn't on my bike early enough. But mm. the next start I rode her, I was right where I needed her and she's got such a good turn of foot. But she's such a lovely horse to ride. She's just Gets off the bridle, does no work early, but it's got that really turned foot at the end when you ask her to. But um, I always thought she was a really nice horse. And actually, on the way home from that day when I won on her, I actually spoke to my father and I said, "I think I, I think I've um, ridden a really good horse today. I think it's a group a group horse. So it's good to be able to say that now. But yeah, I always had a really big opinion of the horse. You're a very youthful 46. You've got no weight problems. You've already ridden well over 2,000 winners. You're seemingly immune to travelling and you're as keen today as you were when you won on Mission Impossible at Hawkesbury 30 years ago. <laughs> when you say that long, that, that's a long time ago. But, yeah, John, I sort of um, – I love my job and I think, you know, if anyone loves their job, it makes it easier. You know, you, you sort of – I enjoy riding. I enjoy the, the barter and that in the room with the boys and things like that and – 
I think I got a new a new lease on life watching what Ty went through. Ty can't do that anymore. So if it's, I know it sounds corny, but I'm probably living, you know, Ty's dream through myself as well. So every every day that I ride, I think of him and I just think how lucky I am to be out there and to be in, the, in this industry. It's just, you know, it's a pleasure to be in. Grant Buckley, it's been a delight having you on the podcast. The podcast, of course, was produced by Supernova Sound. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.